the American Theatre Wing, and the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts bring you the American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre. This session, the General Manager. I'm Ted Chapin, and I'm here with Charlotte Wilcox, one of Broadway's leading general managers today. Um, and I thought we'd start by uh, attempting to define what it is a general manager does and what, what is a general manager. Well, if we had a year, <laughs> I could begin. Um, a general manager oversees every aspect of a production for a producer. Uh, how detailed each of, uh, how detailed that job on each individual is depends on the producer and how much they're involved. Um, so, and so there, so the producer is basically the, per, the, the person who assembles the whole thing, but it's your responsibility sort of from a business standpoint, whereas his or her responsibility is artistic. Is that sort of a way correct. to start? The producer decides who he wants on his team, what director, what choreographer, uh, what scenery designers, what musical personnel. He then tells me, and my job is to go to the agents of those people and negotiate the deals so that he has them. When you get down further down the ladder and you're dealing with stagehands and wardrobe supervisors and uh, uh, managers and dressers and musicians, he probably doesn't get involved in the specific people. He leaves his creative team to choose those, and at that point, instead of interfacing with the producer, I interface with that creative team to see that what they need is achieved. Now we, we hear that shows on Broadway cost three million dollars, five million dollars, twelve million dollars, whatever. I assume that somewhere early on you're the one that has to figure out whether this is going to cost three million dollars, twelve million dollars. So obviously one of the first things is a budget, yes? That's true and, and hopefully early on. I've done many shows where the producer has hired uh, his entire creative team, they've already thought the show through and then he comes and says, okay, I want it to cost X. You sort of go, you want it to cost X. Sometimes you work it out, sometimes you don't. But if a sane producer comes to you, the first thing you do is the budget and you get from him his vision if he has one. If not, then you meet with any of the creative team that he's hired to get their vision. And you sit down, you work it out, you tell him what it costs, and you really negotiate with the producer. He'll say, wait, that's way too much. You explain to him where the expense is so that he can then determine if he wants to decrease a portion of the budget. Is he willing to have less scenery? Is he willing to have less musicians on stage, depending on what the area is and what the problem is? And if, um, if a producer says to you, you know, I want to do this musical and I only have six million dollars, for argument's sake, at the very beginning, I've, I have this property, I want to do it, I think I can get six million dollars to do it, and then he would say, make me a budget, do you think you can do it that way? Do you, I mean, I th do you think you can do it for this amount of money? Do you, do you sort of have a tendency right off the bat to say, right away you've, you've told me $8 million, or we'll try to work it out, or if you're going to do it, you can only have, I mean, it, it's a process. How do you get into the process I, of budgeting? Whenever a producer says, do you think I can do it for this, I always say, it sounds reasonable. Uh, but I really can't tell you not until I put it on paper. Some people uh, seem to have a knack where they can just pull a figure out of the air. I'm really very nuts and boltsy, and I really want to know where it is. And it's uh, incredible detail. It'll take me uh, a good you know, 15 to 25 hours to do a budget between the beginning and when I'm finally ready to present it because there's so many variables um, and there are so many details. It's incredibly detailed that you think, oh, this is a musical that uh, 
um, is going into a theater that requires 26 musicians, but the producers told me he's only got seven. So how am I going to deal with that? I have to go back to a union book and mm -hmm. find out if there is um, a legitimate uh, answer to that, or if in fact I have to tell the producer, well, you may only want seven, but you're going to have to pay 26. So there are a million details like that that need researching. Clearly one of the things that should be said this early in this program is if you are not interested in details, it chances are general management is not a position that you should perceive, pursue. Ab absolutely. It is, it is, uh, it's, it's an interesting job in that it's both um, the big picture and the small picture. There aren't too many jobs where you really need to be good at both. And this is one of them. At the same time that you're going through a book to find a rule that you know is there, but it's minute, but it could cost money, you could have a show that is not selling tickets and the rule is really going to mean nothing if you can't <laughs> you, figure out what the marketing strategy right. is. So you need to do both at all times. That's, I think that's very important. Let's break down a little bit of what's in a budget, what the different categories of, of, a, of a budget are. Obviously the creative staff, as you said, that is key because if a, if a producer decides he's going to do a show, that he needs to know who, first of all, who the author is, and that's a negotiation, yes, and that's yours to, to make? The author's agreement is the one agreement that the manager does not uh, negotiate. That is negotiated by the lawyers, and 90% of the time, by the time a manager is hired, that agreement has already been negotiated. Right. Uh, simply because uh, people don't want to go out and raise tons of money unless they have the rights to a project. And they usually have enough money in the beginning to hire a lawyer who will help them secure the rights. And how long it is before they have enough money to pay a manager, who knows? Right. But so nobody should, should no producer should take on a general manager unless that producer has the property. Um, you, it really is not necessary. I won't say you shouldn't because every, you know, they, some producers use a manager as a sounding board mm -hmm. and they really are in a way a silent partner because the producer just needs someone to talk to. But it's really not necessary. You really, until you have the rights, there's nothing to do. Right. Then, then following that, in that creative staff, you obviously, if it's a musical, you have a director, you have a choreographer, you have a, you have designers. Um, and are those contracts all yours to negotiate? Yes. And are they gruesome negotiations or are they pretty straightforward or do some of these rule books tell you where to start? Well, the rule books give you minimums and they say to you, you cannot pay one of these people less than X amount of dollars depending on the kind of project you're giving. But the uh, talented, experienced people working on Broadway don't work for minimums. So usually you, if you haven't worked with the director or the choreographer or the designer that you're negotiating, you do some research. What are the last few shows they did? You call fellow managers. What did you pay? What kind of a deal? How was it structured? And then you sit down and put that together based on, um, uh, well, when you're negotiating, based on your budget. When you're doing your budget, you, you n hopefully know who the producer wants to hire, and you do that research, and you put in the budget what you believe that person will um, earn. If the producer then says the budget's way too high, you have to cut it, you'll say, okay, then you better not hire this particular designer mm. because you won't get him for what you need, and nor will he do an economical production given the way you want to spend it. The negotiations, are they gruesome? Sometimes. I've had negotiations. Uh, I won't name names, but uh, there's a show running on Broadway that I bet to this day there's not a choreographer's contract signed, and it's probably been running two or three years. The, they can be that gruesome. Wow. And others are very simple. When, uh, uh, when you have budgeted according to who you're hiring and when the, it, 
the agent involved is reasonable. The agents play a big part mm -hmm. in it. How often does the general manager have input on the creative staff? In terms of artistically? Yeah. Uh, in my experience, uh, not that often. Most often when a producer comes to me, they've already got two or three of their creative staff. Um, I have had producers say to me for a specific function, I don't know who I want for this, can you give me suggestions? And I will, and they take them or they don't. But usually they have strong opinions about who they want. And usually the first person they go for is the director, and the director knows who he wants his designers to be. And obviously there's an accumulation of experience with, from, from your experience, from their experience as to who's out there and who they think which choreographer might sign the contract earlier than two years after <laughs> I don't think they really care if it's signed. <laughs> well, the, the choreographer doesn't care because then... Right, and I don't think the producer cares, really. In that instance, I hope there's a happy ending to that one, whatever right. that show is. <laughs> I hope it'll run forever. Um, back to the budget. Okay, once the, these are all signed, uh, obviously, the designers start to work, and th obviously what they... There has to be a, a physical production part of the budget. Um, how much input, when do you, I mean, are you sh shown sketches, preliminary sketches? Are you, do you help guide them, or are you handed a full dossier and full portfolio of costume designs and, and set designs and have to say, okay, well, I think it's going to cost this? In, in most usually, you put figures in without having seen anything. The producer will tell you, I perceive it as a one-set show, or I pr he'll tell you the different locales. You read the script, so you know the locales mm. in the script. Then you try to get the producer, is this something that you think is an automated show? Automation, because of the technology in our world today, is very present on Broadway and very expensive. You try to get as much information out of the producer you can. Often, by this time, the designer hasn't been hired when you do the budget. And and often they don't even know who it is. So you can't talk to anyone. You just have to base it on experience. your experience. I really go through a script um, and keep very detailed notes of every time it changes, and I envision in my mind, how could they do this? And I envision the most expensive way so that I'm covered. Right. And then I put that in the budget. And usually those are the figures that are the highest, and the producer sees them and chokes. Right. And then you get into the detail with them. Okay, if you don't want this, we can go down. If you do, we'd better leave it. And if you're dealing with someone who understands what they want, they'll make a good decision there. I think you said something key that I don't want to pass by without comment, which is that you read the script. Obviously, even though you're in a management position and therefore a money position, the notion of reading a script, knowing how to read a script, um, and having artistic understanding of how you know how it works and how from one scene will, one scene would go into another is key for a general manager, as it really is any any part of the collaborative team in, in the theater. It, it, it is abs absolutely, it's again an interesting because it's not an artistic position. It is really a position um, of nuts and bolts and the big picture is just making sure that there aren't fires you need to put out. In another way, it's a very artistic decision, a, a position. You need to understand the art well enough to be able to hear what the artists want and translate that into dollars and cents. And you need to, during the rehearsal process, um, you, you hang around a lot, doing nothing except listening and paying attention because you'll hear, whether it be the designer or the director, will get an idea and they'll say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do this or we could do this? And you think, it would be great, but that's going to cost a lot. So you immediately go to the producer and say, this idea they had, which is great, could conceivably cost you X, both in the production end and in the running. So that there's a heads up. What, uh, what you want to do is create an environment where the artists can create. And if you're not there and you don't hear these things, they spend a lot of energy 
creating something that at the 11th hour they're told can't be afforded. And then everybody is very angry and testy. So you have to put out fires early when they're very little. That's right. Do you also get to sort of take from one area into another? I mean, if you sense in the rehearsal room that the scenery designer wants something new and you think, oh, we're already over budget on, on this, but costumes look like they're coming in under budget, can you do a certain amount of play that way and thinking, well, maybe we could do this if the costumes don't get any bigger? Almost always. Mm. Uh, occasionally, you'll get a producer who will put in your contract that you cannot go over budget more than a certain percentage on each line item. You can't. Right. And I always object to that strenuously because, number one, the, as it is, the amount of tracking you have to do to make sure you're on budget so that if you, you know, there's a time when maybe you budgeted incorrectly and maybe they really do need that piece of scenery and it'd be terrible to ruin the production because you don't have the money when you have it sitting in another category. So I try to convince the producer that that's a silly uh, clause to have in there. It's not to anyone's advantage. But are you contractually responsible for that? Is that what that's what you just said? Sometimes a producer will try to make you contractually wow. responsible. Normally not. But yeah. sometimes they'll say that you are not allowed to go over a certain line item budget by a certain percent. Seldom. Most contracts don't have anything to do with that in it. But it, it has happened. Right. Now I assume uh, moving on, in, on on the budget, the production salaries are pretty much uh, a key to the number of people um, in rehearsal, certainly, for, for a production budget. When, when you're budgeting up until performances begin, it's numbers of weeks rehearsal, numbers of people rehearsal. I mean, that, that's fairly standard? That's fairly standard. Again, when you come to the people who are working on the production, you know, consistently even after it opens, they, have, they each have a union. Their right. union tells them the mini minimum you, on a particular actor, you know if that's an actor who um, demands over minimum and if so you make a good guess or again you research with other managers what they've recently gotten. Um, so those are, but of course during the rehearsal period it's simply a minimum because everyone gets minimum during the rehearsal period. Right. And again with the fees you have to budget in pensions and welfares. Every union has pension and welfare and uh, annuities now so th and the percentages change consistently. It's again you have to be willing to constantly track that detail. How, how much of a production budget is dictated by union um, rates and union rules? I mean, certainly actors and... I, I'd say a huge percentage, a huge percentage, because even when you're building scenery um, in New York City, you're building in union shops. So right. your rules are dictated by a different set of rules and rules that I don't really have to deal with, but the scenic shop does, so their prices are dictated by that. In advertising, it's not so, I mean, I guess ultimately it goes back to a union, but your advertising rates yeah. are set, and that's ultimately because you go back again. I don't deal with those specific unions, but it's a, it, almost everything on, in the Broadway theater is unionized. And I would imagine on, on the, the scenery that you were just talking about, your relationship with the scenic studio is key, because if you, if you, if you get a number from the studio that you don't like, and they said, "I'm, you know, I, I have no, no play here. This is what the, what the, the rules are." Then you could say, "Well, what can you do for me? Can we do this?" You know. It's yeah. very important. Also, the the designers will push for the maximum because they want um, not so much volume on stage, but they want whether it's volume or quality, whatever. They want the best, and designers really come up with a creative concept. But how you go about um, executing that creative concept they're not so great at. You have production <laughs> supervisors who do that and the shops. So when you'll see a uh, price for something that is just much too high for what 
your budget can bear, you'll go back to the shop and say, okay, help me out. Is there another way to do this? Um, if they don't know you and trust you, they won't answer the question because they will worry that you will go to the designer and say, well, the shop says we right. can do this, and then they'll never work for that designer again. So it's a very delicate art of negotiating how to get the information you need to do it as economically as you can. See, the, the theater is a collaborative world at all levels. At <laughs> all levels. Very important, very important. You mentioned earlier um, the automation in, in, in scenery, and we, we had been talking earlier about the Full Monty, which is your show, which looks fairly straightforward and fairly simple scenically, but it's fully automated, yes? It's fully automated. When I got the um, automation bid, I was uh, thunderstruck, <laughs> and I happened to have in my office a production supervisor who was not working on the Full Monty, but was working on another show, and sort of ran it the broad strokes by him saying am I crazy or is this huge for this little show he was thunderstruck and telling me that it was uh, larger than and again I won't name names right. but one of the musicals on Broadway which was notorious at that time for being huge. Uh, huge and no one could believe that this was possible but it's all off stage it's not seen but the um, we did the show at the Old Globe, and there they were not fully automated. And what would happen was uh, two pieces of scenery would come in. They wouldn't come in at the same rate every night, or this one would come in a little faster than this one. And, of course, on Broadway, you can't have that. So we had to fully, fully automate for Broadway so that it is actually precise, etc. I don't think the audience notices it. If it weren't there, they would notice that it looks sloppy. And, and what fully automated means is that every time a piece of scenery comes on from the side or comes in, f flies in, that's done by a machine that's, there's no, there are no people back there doing this. There are some pieces where there are people back there pulling, and there are pieces that um, don't have to have the precision. But so much of this show, you have uh, three tiers of scenery, they need to come in, um, the timing is perfect. One come in than another than another. So there are some where you have people pulling, but most of it is done by automation. And I assume you whittled that ghastly number down to something manageable. How did you do that? We whittled it. Um, and I don't know because I don't understand the automation. I just know I would call the people involved and, you know, cry. Right. <laughs> Say, you have to do something. We can't do this. And, you know, I, and, and it's not 100% true. I mean, I would look at it, and, and the producers were very helpful here on the Full Monty. One of them has had a lot of experience in uh, producing at the Old Globe for 25 years, so he really knows it. And he would sit and have very good ideas and say, well, couldn't we gang these two together? If these two came in together instead of separately, it'd be a few minutes difference of when they arrive on the stage, but it wouldn't really make a big difference. It would look fine. So he was very helpful in doing that. We didn't whittle away a lot. And then, of course, in that instance, he and you would have to then talk to the director to make certain that the director and the designer is okay with it coming in in a slightly different way than they may have. First, on something like that, you go to the designer, and if the designer is okay, he, he, the designer will then go to the director on it, because at that point, they're speaking the same language. They better be. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to move on to another important budget, which is the running budget. And, I mean, obviously, the production budget is getting the show built, getting it rehearsed, getting it teched in the theater getting it to the first time that the curtain goes up and there's an audience there. But then another responsibility you have is to tell the producers, okay, it's going to cost you this amount of money every week to run this show. What, um, I mean, when do you make that budget and, and what influences that budget, separate and apart from the production budget? The, that, that budget is also made at the same time you make the production budget, although it is probably revised two or three times as you go along and no more. But you really, uh, you, I start by making a budget um, that's based on exactly what I've been told. And then the next thing I do is look at it 
in comparison to the theater that we're going into and the ticket prices we're going to charge and say, okay, if this is the budget, what percent of capacity do we need to break even? And if that percent of capacity is too high, which often it is, then I go back to that budget and say, okay, where can I whittle away? Where can I whittle away? Did I put in too many stagehands? At this point, you're doing a lot of guessing mm -hmm. um, because you haven't got scenery planned yet. And how many stagehands you need is a, a tricky uh, situation. On the fly floor alone, when it's not automated, uh, if you have uh, a scene in the show where eight things move at once, you know, going in or out to make that scene, you've got to have eight guys up there pulling. Uh, from the script, you can't always tell that. You don't have a, a, a set yet. So you base it on, on um, past precedent and what you see about the show. Again, when I take those detailed notes in the beginning, I see they'll say uh, the scene changes and now uh, you know, you're in a circus and uh, the three rings come in and the aerialist comes in and the elephant comes in and this comes in and you say, okay, all those things are happening. You, you sort of decide whether or not how extreme it has to be and you make your best guess, but that's why you have to revise that budget. And you, you have to um, you have to go back and look at the theater you're in because it, even if they say the budget's fine, it doesn't matter if it takes you 80% to break even, then you're, you're really in trouble. And a certain amount of a Broadway theater, um, there, there are certain union stipulations, numbers of, of stagehands and stuff like that. So you're, you're, you have to start with a basis that you can't deviate from, correct? That's right. I mean, you, you, um, the biggest one is musicians. Every Broadway theater has a different number of musicians that you must employ. And if you're a show that's 26 musicians, you don't worry about it because that's about the biggest minimum on Broadway. But uh, in the case of The Full Monty, it was 12 musicians. In the case of Grease, which I did a few years back, it was nine musicians. So at that point, if you know your theater, then you know how to budget for those extra people if they are there. If you don't know your theater, that's where you're in trouble. If you only need nine on stage, are you going to end up in a theater that needs nine or a theater that needs 26? You have to make your best guess. Sometimes you, you just do cover notes to the producer saying, this is assumes we get theater A, B, C, or D, and of course have a conversation with them so that they're aware the budget will go way up if they don't. Did you know in the Full Monty when you were in San Diego what theater you were going into in New York and what the musicians' minimum was in that theater? We knew that we were going into one of three theaters, and the musicians' minimums were wildly different. So we had three Continu separate budgets. Now, also, the seating capacity was wildly different. Um, so in the theater where you had the many larger, uh, many larger sum of musicians, you also had um, a much larger seating capacity, so you were able to work it out. You, ha you hated to spend the money, right, um, but, on the other hand, but it, was, uh, it was affordable. But we did know, I'm thinking we signed the theater contract, I think um, maybe in July or August, and we opened in New York in September. So it was a late a late contract, although we had been pretty certain for a few months which theater we were getting. We just hadn't finalized it. Did you add musicians from San Diego? Did the orchestrations have to be adjusted, or were they pretty much... I believe we kept exactly the same number of musicians, so we did very minor um, changes for New York. Oh, good. When, when, when a running budget comes in and, you, and it will only break even at 85% capacity, obviously one of the things that could be done is to raise the, the ticket prices. Is that your responsibility? Well, certainly I, re I am the one that suggests it mm -hmm. and will do the research so the producer knows um, how competitive they're being. On Broadway, it's pretty um, standard. You know, there's maybe a 5 to a $10 
um, variance in ticket prices. So you'd have to have a pretty, you'd have to be sure you had a pretty huge blockbuster if you were going to raise it high enough to cover that cost if it was over what the going rate was. And do the theater owners uh, have say, input, do they dictate what the ticket prices will be, or is that? The theater owners have say over every um, ticket price, over every discount. Usually you work out a system with them where in the beginning of a, sh a show you run the prices by them, and if you were going to change them during the course of the show, you would have to run them by them. But when it comes to the discounts, um, you know, you decide it's a fallow period, so you want to offer a bigger group discount. They don't, um, they know about it because you have to tell them because they have to program the box office, but they don't at that point really want to be actively involved or need to. At that point, they trust that you're running the show correctly. When you're a general manager of a show, are you responsible for the front of house and the box office, or is that the theater's responsibility, and are you responsible for everything behind the, 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 the proscenium? Well, the, they are the theater's employees, and they are on the theater payroll, so I'm not responsible for their union rules or their payments. But of course, it, when it comes to the box office, I have a um, constant contact with them. I need to get their opinion on what the pulse of the show is, why isn't it doing better, um, what can we do to change it, uh, the summer's coming, shall we stay on the same performance schedule or shall we switch performance schedules based on the ticket buying patterns. So that is really... Um, it's funny, it's a tricky thing with theater owners. Some theater owners are happy to have you just deal with the box office and they're happy never to talk to them. Other theater owners are very protective and want to be involved and don't want you to talk at all. So you'll, you'll talk to the theater owner who will then talk to the treasurer and of course I talk to the treasurer, they just don't know it because I couldn't get my information. I need to get it firsthand. Um, but that, very important. Front of house, um, the only time I get involved in front of house is if it's not running smoothly or if you see an usher or a ticket taker who is um, abusive to the patrons. I mean, we're here to please people, not right. to make it an unhappy experience, but that happens very seldom. And that you would have to talk to the theater owners about that? Yes. I mean, obviously one thing that, that is key to the whole question of, of ticket sales and when tickets are soft, and also from, from a budget standpoint, if you walk in Times Square and you look around, you see that some, some people are advertising there are enormous um, billboards up and other shows don't have that. So obviously advertising is one of the key issues in the budget that can be very big or very small. Um, what influences that? Um, I think there it's a producer's decision. Uh, you tell the producer what you think they should spend and the biggest, usually, usually most shows have enough in their budget to advertise adequately up till opening. Then the question is post-opening. And there are huge sums of money that need to be, can need to be spent on a show post-opening. And it's one of the biggest mistakes new producers make is they just say, well, I'll worry about that later. And then they open their show, which gets mixed reviews. It's, it's not a uh, smash hit, but it's not a dog by any means. And it could have a life, but they haven't got one penny to advertise it. And at that point, if you're not a smash hit, you need to pour a huge amount in to um, uh, solidify the perception of the buyer. And if you don't have those post-opening dollars, I, I have worked on shows that um, didn't get great reviews, but were audience pleasers and very worthy shows. And they've closed because the producers did not have money to advertise after opening. And I assume this is something which you as a general manager can alert a producer to early on and keep at them all the way along, but ultimately it's not your decision. That's right. 
And that's pretty much true of everything. And I was thinking about that this morning. Is uh, For a human being who wants to... It's, an, again, an interesting job because, in a way, you're everybody's boss except the producers. Mm -hmm. And you're perceived that way. In another way, you really can't make any decision. Of course, there's a million little decisions you can make, but you really have to keep the producer informed and make the decision he wants. It's a huge responsibility, and managers get very little notice or credit. If, if, and I happen to think if they're doing their job well, they shouldn't get notice or credit because they're just keeping the wheels running for everybody else. But for somebody who's looking for recognition um, and uh, you know, to be the big cheese, it's maybe not the job for them. Is it, is it a stepping stone to a job for somebody who wants to be a big cheese, or is that a mistake to, for someone to make? I think it could be the only really job to go, you know, unless you're going to go into the corporate world and do something that's not theater but related, but the only job in this industry that it's a stepping stone to, I think, really is the producing job. And definitely, I think anybody who wants to be a producer doesn't have to but could value, or could um, uh, get a lot of value out of knowing the job because then you know what you're paying you know, for, and, and nobody can pull a fast one on you. You know what the, what the financial nuts and bolts are. Right. How did you get to be a, a general manager? Uh, I came up through the ranks. I started as a producer's secretary, a number of producer's secretary, and uh, just kept plugging away, and I got elevated as I went along, and went along I became a company manager, which I really didn't actually do that job much, but uh, briefly. And then one day um, I was working for a company as a, a, a a manager of shows that were playing, uh, we pr would produce them here in New York, down for Florida, and a New York producer uh, who was working with the firm I worked for was unhappy with their manager and wanted a new one. There were two producers, uh, uh, and they didn't see eye to eye, and I was the one person they could both agree on that they'd be happy to hire, and that's how I got my start. Yeah, exactly. Um, explain a, a little bit what a company manager is, because I know we're, we're here to talk about general management, and they are two different jobs. But what a, a company manager, I assume, it, at least partly has to do with the company. Right. The company manager is overseeing the details of the company. He does their payroll every week. The stage manager will say to the company manager, okay, this actor missed two days. Uh, this actor filled in for him, and the company manager figures out what you actually have to dock the one actor and pay the other actor. Uh, the company manager is at the theater every night. He works very closely with the box office. He actually counts the receipts every night. In this day and age, counting the receipts is, is reading a, which numbers you have to ask for backup for and how to read those reports, so it can be uh, pretty tricky. Um, that's a very important job. And it's really generally to be available for the company and to take care of their needs and you need it's it's a, again a, a delicate job you need to know is this actor complaining about his shoes because this actor will complain about his shoes for the rest of his life or does this actor really need new shoes yeah. so you have to have good judgment and and a sensitivity to human beings does a company manager work for a general manager uh, he works for the show as far as whose employee he is, but the general manager is his direct supervisor. And a good company manager that you have a relationship with, um, you rely on more and more, and you know that you, I don't get involved in their day-to-day -day detail. I know that if he has a question, he'll come to me and say, okay, what do you think about this? So-and-so was out sick and technically should be docked, but really the, uh, it w he was out sick for this reason and maybe we shouldn't. I mean, there's a certain um, human aspect of it that you want to keep in play because these are all human beings and we're all going to live together a long time. So the company manager does report back, but 
he, um, if, if the man general manager trusts the company manager, the general manager will give that person a lot of leeway to work on their own. I, I want to point out that you're referring to the company manager as he. Right. And I think we should point out that, that you know, these jobs, I mean, well, let me ask you, is, is this a, a guy job or? No, it isn't, actually. I, the current company manager I'm working with is a he, so I referred to he. But on my last show, the company manager uh, was a woman who um, I've worked with on many shows, and it really isn't a guy job or a girl job. It's either one, and it's both, and equally effective. Um, and I think that goes, it's true for general managers, it's true for stage managers, it's true in this day and age for everything in our industry. I mean, you, the, you go backstage and the stagehands, which is, you know, has always been uh, primarily, uh, exclusively, really, for years and years, uh, male territory is not, no longer. I have, a, on, I have a road tour of Ragtime Out, the head sound engineer is a woman, um, the assistant carpenter is a woman, so it's, uh, gender is really not important. I think that's something that has been the case in the theater for a long time, and I think it's 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 good to know if anybody's interested in working in the theater that it's not a, a gender specific or a race specific or an age specific. Not at all. Manner. There's still it's still predominantly male, um, but that's just because I think it doesn't attract the females as strongly, or maybe they're just way ahead of us. But uh, it's absolutely pays no attention, and I don't think anyone in this industry really. When someone's interviewing, you don't pay attention to someone, whether they're male or female. It's not an important uh, issue. Yeah, it was interesting that you said you started as a secretary. I wonder if there are male right. secretaries. There are male secretaries. I yeah, wonder if they're I actually had offices. a male secretary. He was the best one I ever had. I miss him dearly. Where is he? What's he doing now? <laughs> he works for a famous author. Okay, well. <laughs> um, are there schools for general managers? Uh, are there... Are there um, theater administration schools, what would you recommend for somebody who wanted to, to work toward being a general manager? How would somebody get a start academically? Uh, it's interesting. When I uh, began to work in this business as a general manager, there were very few schools where you could learn it. And as a general manager, and I think my fellow general managers felt the same way, we sort of poo-pooed those schools. You know, they're really a waste of time. They really uh, postpone your learning, and you should just get a job and start from the ground up. Those schools have become much more sophisticated. They now call on professionals to be their professors, whether they be full-time professors or whether they be, um, you know, come in for a day here and there. But uh, a lot of the people I hire do come out of the graduate schools, and they definitely do have, um, and not only graduate, undergraduate now also, they definitely do have um, a knowledge of uh, the business more than someone who's coming directly out of, say, a Bachelor of Arts. They, they are aware that there are unions. They are aware of uh, the different unions. I can remember when I was in college, I thought I knew quite a bit. I was <laughs> going to go into the theater. I was going to New York, go to New all. York and make my way. And my theater professor said, name three New York producers. And I was amazed because I couldn't name one. And that taught me right there that I knew so little. And I think that's probably true of most people, unless they happen to be avid theatergoers. I didn't happen to grow up in an area where I was near New York, so I had maybe only seen two or three shows in my life when I came to where did do you, this where did you job. Grow up? I grew up in upstate New York, <laughs> Bath, New York. <laughs> not a touring spot. <laughs> no, not a touring <laughs> spot at all. <laughs> the high school play was, I think, about it. Um, um, do, do you feel that students that you've worked with today that come out of, out of these programs are ready to start at the bottom or do you think that 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 
they enter at a higher level. Um, no, they still have to start at the bottom because the ex the experience. You can understand that there are different unions, and but that doesn't begin to tell you what's in each of those books. Well, you have a slew of books here of all kinds of pastel colors, and the yes. these are, are are these all the, the books that you have to know? As no, a I'm manager? I'm missing a few. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and these are only really the uh, books that deal with the production end. If you dealt with the theater end, you'd have another slew of them just as big. Um, and you do. You have to know what's in them. You, you don't, when I, uh, at PAM, which is a union of managers and press agents, um, company managers and press agents, and when I was joining that union, you have to take a test after a two-year apprenticeship. When I took the test, you had to know what was in each of these books by memory. Now, of course, they've gotten smart and realized what a waste of time to make people memorize, and you can take the books to the test with you. Memorizing it was, was impossible, right. but knowing where to find it and knowing when an issue comes up that there's a rule somewhere. Um, every day, that something comes up, and you say, wait a minute, there's a rule somewhere. Someone wanted to uh, put uh, footage of a show I'm working on um, at a certain convention for... Um, some kind of computer technology, and the question was, okay, can we show that? And they were going to they were going to digitalize it into their website, and then show this. So he says, can we put this footage on a website on the internet without paying for it? Yes, everybody said we could. We said, oh, but they're going to then take this digitized footage on their website and run it continuously all day long so that anyone who walks by their booth will see it. Suddenly that's not the internet anymore. That's now a lobby loop. And on a lobby loop you can't do it without payment. So the details of knowing what's in there and knowing there's a rule about it and going and finding that rule is something you do all day long. What is a lobby loop? A lobby loop is like um, a loop in the lobby. It's that like just a loop if you're in a movie theater and they pay it, play a continuous loop. You can only do that if you've paid the talent that are on that loop. But and I assume that this footage to begin with is footage that was shot for promotional purposes. Correct. And you're, the unions are very strict about the um, use you can make without payment for certain footages. Another interesting thing in this business um, that plays a big part in things like promotional uh, footage is every union's rules are different. They don't coincide. I was going to ask if, they, if, there any, if there's coordination When you get the to books. rehearsal times, equity says you can, you can rehearse during these hours, but the stagehands have to have one of those hours as their lunch break, and you're not allowed to be on stage unless the stagehands are there. So right off the bat, you've lost, a lo lost an hour. So knowing, uh, coordinating the rules is also a big... Um, so so your, your job would be if if you find that and there's a footing that, that there's a, a fitting that one of the actors has to do plan that fitting during the hour when they can't rehearse on stage or is that too simplistic well th that would be great if you could do them maybe maybe you could i don't actually do that that's really the stage manager's job when okay. it comes to the actors in rehearsal and when they're there and when they're not that's the stage manager however if a stage manager comes to you and says well, the only way i can get this actor a fitting is to do it in overtime because it doesn't it conflicts with one of these rules then i've got to say okay you know an experienced stage manager would know how to do it but everybody has to start somewhere and you're always going to work with new people then, then I have to go back to the book and say okay how is it 
can I remember how to right. figure out how it was we do this? And then you say to the stage manager, okay, do it this way. And sometimes it works, and sometimes there's another problem. And also in that, I would enlist the aid of the company manager. It, it, stage managers, company managers, general managers all spend a lot of time with the rule books. Well, they all have the word manager That's in, in it. their title. <laughs> I can't help but notice that the Actors' Equity book has a lot of tabs. Why is that? Right. <laughs> Those tabs are uh, quite a few years old and actually I don't think the system worked that well so I may change okay. it the next time. <laughs> um, every book here, every union, uh, has an expiration date. You negotiate a collective bargaining agreement. The League of American Theaters negotiates a collective bargaining agreement with each union on behalf of the producers. And so every two to three to four years a new book comes out. If you don't read those rules, you don't know the new rules, and you'll, I still do some things the way I did 20 years ago, or I'll say, I know you can do that, I know you can do it, I'm remembering a rule from 20 years ago, um, but now I've got to go back to the book and see if that rule is still there or been changed. So these tabs were all the new rules in the last negotiation. If none of those books existed? Um, yes and no. Uh, there certainly is a value to the structure because Everyone respects the rules, management and employees. Um, they may not like them, and they may disagree with them, and that may create all kinds of problems, but for the most part, everybody respects the rules. And if you can say, whether it be an actor or a stagehand, you know, what you're claiming you should be paid, look right here, it's not there, they'll say you're right, they might make a note that the next time their union negotiates, they'd better address that issue, but they'll understand it and go away. So the rules do help. What happens is when you get a book that evolves and evolves and evolves, um, you can tend to get some rules that are so overwritten that it's a nightmare to administer and you say we should just throw that one out and start over again. It, also, how much um, authority has management given? In, in this equity rule book, management has given a huge author uh, amount of authority to Actors' Equity. If you look at the LORE, the League of Regional Theatre rule book, um, equity has nowhere near as much authority there. Um, That's interesting. Yes, it is, and it's um, and that, it that comes out of collecting bar collective bargaining. Right, agreement. and who's doing the bargaining, and do they really understand <clears throat> the issues? And maybe they should just tell equity, no, you're not going to have anything to say about that issue. That was a big issue in this last negotiation: was management trying to get back some of the rights that it feels as management it should have, and a union shouldn't get involved in. Very difficult because once a union has jurisdiction over an issue, they want to retain it. Right, unless they give them something else that that may be even worse. If you, from your experience, if you were given the task of taking all of those rule books and all of those contracts and fixing them all and writing one great big Broadway rule book that covered absolutely everything, do you think that would help the perceived notion that, that Broadway is wildly unionized and even as you say, the rules don't coordinate? Or do you think ultimately it's okay this way? Uh, I don't. It's the way it is, and it's the way it's going to stay until it slowly evolves. It couldn't. It 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 couldn't change. It's each union is uh, has their perception of their role, and they don't want to um, see it management's way. Uh, now, if, it it if, should. I mean, it it should all be. I I believe that there may come a point. Uh, every year our costs go up substantially. Um, I believe there could come a point where the unions, or maybe it's management allowing the unions, it's, we're all in this together, but the prices get such that we price ourselves right out of the business. And at that point, I don't know how long it will take, I think the unions will slowly go because nobody will have work and you will start over again. I don't know if that's going to happen in three years or 53 years. 
um, at one point when the British shows started coming over and Broadway was doing quite poorly at that point and there wasn't a lot of great product on the horizon, um, and I, I thought it was coming then. I thought it's not long before we've just outpriced ourselves. Then the British imports came in and were such Give huge successes that we kept the, the, the circle going. It gave the perception that business was now great. Right, and it was great. I know that there's a, there's a, there's a quite current um, fracas going on about non-equity tours, which certainly, you know, if you read everything about it, it would indicate that something's wrong, but I don't know what it is that's wrong, but there are non-equity, there's a whole industry of non-equity tours. They're not non-union tours, they're just non-equity right. tours. And they're, and they're, um, they're getting less and less, and they're getting more and more. Some of the producers who've done non-equity for years are now starting to make uh, equity agreements that are lesser than this agreement and some are um, new non-equity are coming through. I don't know what trend that will have for us. And those are things that um, we as managers don't really decide. I mean, if you can decide whether or not you want to do a non-union tour. I don't do them because I don't know them. It's a whole right. different business. But they're, um, as a general manager in this industry, the more experience you have, you're asked by the League of American Theaters to be involved, to help them negotiate, because the managers are the ones who know the rules. Um, and we're often brought in, uh, separate really from the job that we're paid to do, it's really sort of a pro bono work we do to further the industry, because without doing this wisely, we won't have jobs. But this is uh, one of the issues that is often on the um, table for discussion. And have you been part of the negotiating teams? I have been. It's, um, I was part of the equity negotiating team and unfortunately I didn't get to spend much time there because it coincided, uh, it was last summer which is when we were producing the full Monty. And so you had a job. Yeah, you can't <laughs> you very well to say do. to the producer, sorry I'm going to be in negotiations for three weeks. What's the salary range for a general manager? I would say general managers for musicals on Broadway, um, you get a fee up front and then you get a weekly uh, retainer for your work. And I would say the fees range from probably uh, 3500 to 4500 plus you get an office fee of, you know, 500 to 1000 a week. And for that fee, you've prepared the budgets? And no, that's the weekly fee. The, okay. the, the production fee, I would say, ranges from like 35000 to 50 or 60000 That sounds more like it for right. the amount of work exactly. that you described. Yeah. But and on a weekly basis? On a weekly basis, it's like 3500 to 4500 plus an office fee. And is that, now the office fee, does that cover your office or does some no. of the $3,500 go to t towards the yeah, office? Yeah, the, 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 the office fee you get doesn't cover your office, but um, it goes toward it. You know, you have to provide a desk for the company manager. You have to provide desk for the accountants who come in once or twice a week. So it goes toward providing a space that's a bit bigger and will accommodate those. And what does a company manager make? What's the range for a company a manager? A company manager, uh, they just came out with new rules. Uh, the old minimum for a company manager was $14.92 and it's gone up and I don't think I've actually seen those new new rates yet but it's something slightly above that. And is that generally a higher minimum than actors or is it about the same as actors or, um, and, and also stagehands? Where does it sort of... Stagehands get the most of everyone. If you want to make money that's the job to get. But don't you have to be born into a certain <laughs> yes. number of families? Okay, we'll just leave that one alone. Um, uh, no, a, a stagehand on a weekly basis probably makes uh, about $1,000, but that's just for showing up for eight shows a week. If they have to come in and do a work call, they get paid uh, um, extra money to do that work call. If they, if if they want to work real hard, they can do load-ins on a different show while they're running a show at night and make a lot of money. How often do the, uh, on a show like the Full Monty that, that's running, how often are work calls? How many? We have a work call um, 
at least every couple of weeks. We have to have a sound call every couple of weeks. And again, that's something that as a general manager you pay attention to. The, the stagehands will go to the stage manager and say, I need a call to do X, Y, and Z. And I need so many men to do it in so many hours. Um, I make the company managers get involved in that discussion because invariably if you negotiate you can get less hours or you can get less men or you can say okay but you know uh, there are rules here if you are working if you're just working on carpentry you also have to bring in an electrician because you need lights without the lights the carpenters can't work so if you're bringing in the electricians and you f the what you hate is you bring in the carpenters and the electrician and then you find out the next day that you had electric work to do and nobody told you nobody to told you so now you paid the elect maybe it was only one or two electricians but you paid them for the day they really didn't have anything to do they just were there because the lights were on and if you'd known they had work you would have brought in two or three extra guys and only been paying those two one day instead of two days so i get very involved in those they're they're in a way they're small items but on a long-running show over time they add up to a huge amount you want to be as efficient as you can be and these are basically maintenance calls right I mean if it's touch mostly of maintenance calls mostly maintenance calls you have to do a certain the sound especially and the lights especially and then periodically you'll have a call where you will go in and you know vacuum out the fly system so that you're not getting dust uh, mm -hmm. floating down on the actors and certain shows have certain um, requirements that you have to on Jesus Christ Superstar which I did last summer um, near the end of the show when they are flogging Jesus there was fake blood that flew all over the I stage noticed. you noticed right <laughs> a lot of people noticed that blood so you had to go in periodically and scrub that off so every show has its unique things that wasn't a very expensive call how many times a week do you as a general manager visit a show that that's yours uh, when you're in production, I'm there constantly. I mean, I'm there from 8 in the morning until midnight. The, whenever anyone's in that building. I'm not in the building all day long, but I check in early to see what's going on. If you don't, you find that you know $10,000 is spent and you didn't know about it. It happened so fast. And I'm there until the actors are released, again, because they might decide they need a call tomorrow to do X and Y, and you've got to tell them what X and Y costs. Once the show's up and running, um, I tend to go once or twice a week depending on my schedule and again depending on what's happening with the show if you've got a lot of activity going on then it's more often if you have less activity then it's less often do you get written reports from those people like the stage manager and the company manager who are at the theater every night you get a written report from the stage manager which of course is the first thing you read every morning uh, the company manager doesn't do a written report he, he in a way he does he gives you a written report of the figures you've done so you know financially where you are in comparison to other weeks but the company manager most usually works out of the general manager's office so you don't really need written reports because he is there with you every day and will come in and tell you what your time I can do more than one show at a time I have done up to six shows at a time and that was very unpleasant I'm sure. um, because you just you 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 order the bells for the show that needs the the elect the rock well and not guitar. so much that you just can't be as involved you can't be involved in the fun things you just you know if there's a, a press call that could be interesting and fun that maybe you're not essential for but it would be interesting to know what's going on you can't be there you have to always be and you work you know uh, 14 hours a day seven days a week when you do that I I did that for quite a while and got sick of it and decided to downsize. I went down to one show in 1998 and thought I would stay there, but slowly it built back up. Now I have two, three. I wouldn't want to do more than three at a time. Three is handleable as long as the production periods don't coincide. Right, I can 
well imagine three sets in, a, in, a, in different studios or in the same studio. Would, I once would be did here. two shows simultaneously, and one was teching in Louisville, Kentucky, and one was teching in New York City, and they both had massive problems. Oh dear! And, oh, it was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> what are the fun things? You, you, you alluded to that you wouldn't get to do the, the fun stuff. What is the fun stuff? Well, the fun things are, um, I guess that partly depends on each individual and what they perceive as fun. But uh, when you're in production and you're taking a show, it's tedious and horrible, but it's fun because you're dealing with the people. Most of what a manager does, this is another thing that people thinking of this um, as a, a career should think of. As a general manager, mostly you're dealing with papers. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with people on the phone. You're dealing with a creative team, but you're not dealing with the actors on a day-to-day -day basis. You're not dealing with the ultimate artistic endeavor that you've all worked for. Um, there aren't enough hours in the day that you can you couldn't go you could I suppose go to the theater every night if you wanted no life at all. Right. But <laughs> your your contact with that part of the show, which is the show, is very little once it's up and running. Mm -hmm. um, and during the tech rehearsals, each manager decides where they have to be. But that's the fun part, dealing with the people. Um, is, is, the, is the press stuff fun? I mean, the press stuff is fun. You know, Al Roker came into the Full Monty and did his Full Monty, and that was done over a couple of days of filming, and, and that was fun. It, and if you're too swamped under, you just don't show up because you're not needed. They don't need you for that. They run it. You up front figure out what it will cost, so they don't need you there. But you want to be there. But um, the, the, the press representative is the one who, who deals with absolutely. that kind of stuff. And the, the, do you coordinate with him or her, I assume? We, we they tell us what they want to do. We tell them what it will cost. And once it's approved, what it's going to cost, then the manager really doesn't have to be involved, although it's fun to be involved. Do the costs of press stuff get borne by the show or by whoever the, the press? If Al Roker is coming to do something in the show, do, do they pay for the... Something like that is a big project, and usually there the costs are shared. The costs on that kind of, of uh, or when you go on the Rosie show, they're very high. Um, and usually in those cases, um, the show and the, the, the TV show and the Broadway show share the costs. And you put those costs in the advertising budget, I assume. Yes. So that they, There's a can big, big miscellaneous pot. <laughs> yes. yes, the contingency. Right. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who thinks he or she is interested in becoming a general manager for the Broadway theater? I would, assuming that that person is, uh, well, whether they're a college student or not, I would um, give them the advice that they should get an internship in a general manager's office. Again, when I started in this business, there was no such thing as interns, but this has become now a, a, a big um, beginning career step. I must get, you know, this many resumes a year from people who want to be interns, and I think it's very valuable because the, they really get to, they don't learn the nuts and the bolts, but they learn the lingo, and they learn the people, and they learn whether or not they like the kind of work. They may be running errands all day, or they may be standing at a Xerox machine, or they may be answering their phones, but they're seeing what everybody does. And a general manager's office is the best place to start for anyone, I think, because you not only see what the general manager does, because the general manager interfaces with every um, job description there is, you get to see they it all. get to see what they all are, and are there ones they want to go into more thoroughly. That's great, and that's a perfect place to stop. Thank you, Charlotte. It was a pleasure. Thank you. The American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre is a project of the American Theatre Wing and the New York Public Library's Billy Rose Theatre Collection, Theatre on Film and Tape Archive.